This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 470. And the quote of the day is, spectacular achievement is always preceded by unspectacular preparation. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey yo, what's going on? This is Nick Ruffini. This is Drummer's Resource Podcast. Hope you're well. It's uh, I'm in LA, but it is dreary and raining, and I feel like I'm in Seattle. So I'm sure I'm getting no uh, sympathy from from people there on the East Coast who are either freezing or it's raining or whatever the case may be. Anyway, we're not here to talk about the weather. We're here to talk about drums, and boy, do I got someone who knows a thing or two about the drums. The amazing Harvey Mason is here. I've been wanting to get him on the podcast for a long time. He's been extremely influential in my playing, and I'm sure he's been influential in a lot of your playing as well. Not only for the stuff that he did with Herbie Hancock and foreplay and all that, but just, I mean, his resume, I don't his resume speaks for itself and I don't need to to go down that road. It's been well documented, but to have him on the podcast for me is a very very special thing and we talk a lot about the preparation that goes into being a master drummer. We talk about the differences between touring and playing in the studio, approaches, all those sorts of things, him studying with Alan Dawson, him studying with Vic Firth. So a lot of amazing content in here, especially coming from the man himself, Mr. Harvey Mason. So I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get into it with the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Harvey Mason. Harvey Mason, how are you, sir? Thank you so much for being a part of this. Nick, it's great to speak with you, and I look forward to it. This is going to be great. Likewise. I, like many, many drummers out there, have been a fan of your playing for years, have been influenced by your playing. And uh, so to, to actually be able to sit down you know, and, and chat with you is amazing for me. I've been, I've been listening to you since, I don't know, when I was 14 or 15 years old, and I'm, I'm thir- I'll be 38 in April, so it's been a while. So this is a long time coming. Thank well, you again. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I, there's so much information that's, that's already out there about you. You've had quite the prolific career. Uh, the, the thing that's interesting to me is that you're from – you were born in Atlantic City. I'm from the Philadelphia area, and I, I'm interested to know – what it was like for you growing up in that area and sort of what the influences are. Because although Philadelphia and Atlantic City obviously aren't the same town, they're the same area. And I feel like I don't know much about that area, um, you know, around when you were growing up. So what was it like for you growing up in that area? Well, uh, Atlantic City was always called, when I was a kid, it was called the playground of the world. And and it, it was a summertime a resort where everyone came from the East Coast to Atlantic City to go to the beaches and there were all kinds of clubs there and there was uh it was like the, the north side and then there was the south side which is primarily Italian and uh both had great clubs with the, the north side. Which was the African American area had just incredible clubs and lots of jazz. I mean lots of just everyone came to Atlantic City. I was very fortunate that from the age of about 13, I started working hotel gigs, uh, playing in hotel bands, and then gradually uh, graduated to playing in clubs, playing in the off hours in one of the best jazz clubs in the city called the Wonder Garden. So when the stars would finish playing, uh, my band, my organ trio, would go in and be play, playing until the next morning when they had uh, a breakfast show. And the weekends... Uh, there was music around the clock, nonstop, because there weren't enough hotels to to provide for all the people that came in. They came in on buses, they dropped them off at the park, they went to the beach during the day, and they came to the clubs. On the weekends, they stayed in the clubs around the clock. So there was a lot, a lot of musicians working, and I got to meet and play and uh, listen to a lot of the greatest players around. So I had a pretty amazing education at a very early age, and by the time I went to college. I've been playing jobs and playing and was really experienced playing in big bands and surfing bands and bar mitzvahs and playing with singers and playing in a great piano trio with the guy that was from New Orleans. I took James Brown, James Black's place in his band. So I had a lot of experience playing all kinds of music. 
And I went to expecting to study with uh, uh, Alan Dawson, and we ended up playing more than studying. But at any rate, <laughs> uh, Atlantic City was a Atlantic City was a lot of fun. There was music going all the time, and so it was just a big party. And I had a ball. I had an ABC card, which is an alcoholic beverage control card, when I was young, which allowed me to work in the clubs, but I had to stay a certain amount of feet from the bar. And if I ever got cut drinking, I'd lose that club, but the, that, excuse me, lose the card. But it was a lot of fun, and, and, and I had a lot of great times. I used to go to Philly sometime and go up to Peps. As a matter of fact, I played up there with, with uh, uh, Wavo Davis. We played up there. Oh, I yeah? Up there and see, just go see Miles Davis. There were two clubs there. It was Pepsin and Showboat, I think, was the other club in Atlantic City. So I, I'd go up there and listen to some of the great bands that didn't come to Atlantic City right away. Mm -hmm. I had a time. But it was so much fun. I had a great time. So was there gambling then uh, in Atlantic no. City? No. No gambling. No gambling. Gambling actually destroyed the city because yeah. they they moved all the people out of the north side. And they just had, they wanted everyone to just go to the boardwalk. So they closed all those clubs and and, uh, and forced everyone to go to the boardwalk and then they had all the property there and they were going to, to sort of uh, re-gentrify, but they never did and stayed yeah. dormant. So they pretty much gambling ruined the city and then the gambling left in the city has been in terrible shape since then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say now that now that gambling is legal, you know, in Pennsylvania and different parts around there, now it's, you know, and Delaware and all that kind of stuff. It's like there's that was the main focus of Atlantic City, as you know, and now most people aren't going there for for gambling. Right. So there's no other reason right. to go there, and it's just been it's it's bad, yeah, for sure. Prior to gambling, though, was when I was there because I, I left in 1966. Mm -hmm. So prior to, during that during the time I was there, it was it was there as a resort. Because the beaches were there, the boardwalk was there, and the music was there. So people yeah. came in busloads, and there was no gambling, but they came for the entertainment. Hmm. And you could go see Sinatra, you could see Dionne Warwick, and this great club had all the stars that played. They had a big cabaret, a big show with an MC and everything. And so it, it was just incredible. And I worked at a club that had an MC, and they had a, uh, a comedian, they had a, a dancer, and they had, I mean, it was just. It was great. So I learned to play shows at a early age, early age, and hence my experience got me the Academy Awards for like 22 years. So I've had, you know, a lot of experience playing all kinds of music, and it was the greatest place to grow up for me. And for people who don't, who are listening, who don't know, I mean, it's almost it was almost like a mini Vegas, you know. It was it had you know it had everything going on. I mean, especially from a gambling perspective now and everything, it's just. It's a it's a it's a unique town for sure, and sadly uh, needs to be needs to be revitalized a bit. But so I. But at that time, at that time, it was important to emphasize that there was no gambling. So music right, and right. entertainment was why people were there. And mm -hmm. this America pageant also, and so it was all about entertainment and music. Yeah, and you you had mentioned that you know you were you were playing at thirteen years old in these clubs. Was that normal for people your age to be playing, or were you? further advanced than a lot of people because i hear i've had a lot of people who i've interviewed you know and they say oh i started i started gigging at 12 13 14 years old and for me like when i was coming up i couldn't i couldn't gig at that age it just wasn't I mean, there was nowhere to play at that age unless you played at like a, a rec center or something like that but not professional gigs like that was that normal at the time well for me i played in a junior high school big band and some of the parents were at the concert and they started calling me, but I was working at hotel gigs at 13. Not, you know, I was working at just uh, in hotels and playing special events. I wasn't playing any nightclubs at that age. Oh, I, didn't okay. playing high school, I didn't start playing uh, nightclubs until I was about 15, I think. That's when I started playing nightclubs. Mm. That's when I had that, that card. But prior to that, I was just playing. Uh, there was enough of that going around. There, was so, there were events everywhere. Now, at the high school, I was in a bar mitzvah band. Uh, we had saxophone, two saxophones and keyboard myself, and we we worked all the time playing bar mitzvahs because it was you know a very heavy Jewish population in Atlantic City as well. So it it was uh, it was all music, you know. Yeah, yeah, and obviously you know times have changed now with with the the landscape of music, and how how do you how do you think people can gain gain that sort of experience? That you got, whether it be at an early age or as they get older, playing all because I don't know many people who play weddings and bar mitzvahs and 
you know, play a cocktail gig and do this thing and do this gig and do this gig. And I remember years ago talking to Indugu about that too, that there were so many opportunities to play so many different styles of gigs all the time. You learned quickly. And I, I don't see those opportunities as, you know, as fruitful as they used to be. Um, what's your take on that? Well, I can only say I think it depends on where you live, number one, and what's going on there as far as music. But I, there may be some hotbeds of music that where there are lots of different gigs. But uh, I think primarily it depends on where, where you live and maybe how good you play at that particular time. But uh, it's it's just very different now. And, you know, and So I'm not in that market, so I don't, I'm not sure of how it's, if it's still thriving or what's happening. But right. I know the drummers are turning out to be really, really good players now. A lot of very mm-hmm. young young great players that, that have learned because of the internet and the lessons and uh, what have you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, it, you know, there may, may be some places where some young drummers are playing and I'm sure there are. They're getting very valuable experience because they, they play really, really well. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a difficult, uh, you know, it's a difficult landscape, especially, you know, in, in the business that I'm in with podcasting. So I have an audience and people are contacting me frequently like, Oh, you know, I need. To, I'm trying to figure out how to get gigs. and Everything. It's like it, I don't think it's much different than than years ago either. You have to. You got to hustle for your gigs, and and you got to figure it out. And if you're willing to work hard, I think there's. I think there's ample gigs out there. Obviously, there's a there's less than there was before, but maybe that just maybe that just forces pe- forces people to be better and work harder. <laughs> well, I don't know that there are more or less gigs, but I I, uh, I think there are more drummers now that are prepared. Even when I came to LA. Mm-hmm. I don't think there were that many many high high end players, you know. So I ended up managed to get in, but now there's so many choices and so many guys that even if the gigs are the same amount, you're not going to work. The guy's going to work. Most guys go on the road and they record. When I was here, I didn't go. I dared go on the road. I didn't go on the road. I stayed in studios all the time, worked every single day, including the weekends. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, I didn't have to do that. But things have changed now. Most guys I know, even if they're doing studio work, they're they're on the road with somebody doing something, so it's just just changed. Yeah, it's it's all it always interests me to know you know to hear of that before where it was like if you were a road guy you were on the road and if you were a studio guy you were in the studio and the two paths sort of didn't cross. But now everyone's got a, a hand in everything and and has their has multiple irons in the fire because you know times have changed for sure. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to talk about something that I remember you. I remember hearing you talk to Don Famolaro about it. About the idea of of taking lessons and not practice or not taking lessons on a drum kit until really until you got to to college with Alan Dawson, and that's that's something that I've heard from from multiple people where they're like, I never got behind a kit until I was older. Uh, what was the experience like getting into college and starting to work with Alan Dawson? There's there's so many different stories of him and I'd love to hear your take on it and just some experiences that you had with Alan. Well, of course I had the same experience that you spoke about. I started taking drum lessons in public school The music education. In public schools was really prevalent at that time. And, and had it not been for that, I probably would not have been a drummer except I had natural instincts and I was crawling around and banging on pots and pans and oatmeal boxes. But I started <laughs> taking lessons at seven and it was all orchestral. So on the snare drum and you played bass drum and you just did the orchestral and the band thing all the way up through junior high school. When I went to uh, high school, into junior high school, I started playing timpani in the orchestra. So uh, so by the time I got out of high school and had been playing drums, the drum set, which I didn't own a set until I was 14, the guy in Atlantic City, the drum shop, urged drum shop, the guy knew I played, and he was a sidey drummer, and he told me, just take this drum set and pay me as you can when you can. And it was very, very cool. Nice. So I had a, so my first drum set was a Gretsch drum set. I was really happy to have it. And uh, But uh, I played so much. By the time I went to college, I really was a very experienced drummer. And I played in a lot of situations, as I said previously. So I went there, and I had lessons with, uh, with Alan Dawson. He... Just we went through accidents, rebounds, a couple other things, so a couple of lessons, and then he said, "Let's just play, you know. Let's just we're going to play." And we just basically went to lesson and we talked and we played, and uh, that's pretty much. What, I was pretty disappointed because I um 
he, you know, he wanted to see if I could read and all this sort of thing. And he, after, I had a couple other teachers prior to him in school, and it, it was okay, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really showing me anything that I was interested in. So by the time I got to Allen and I didn't get the lessons, I was pretty disappointed. But, you know, I figured out that he really probably didn't want to taint me or change what I was doing. Because I had some pretty tough guys when I played some of these bands younger and I played the jazz club, they were on me pretty hard to come up to the high, high level of professional musicians. And I was a young kid and I was I remember many days being rehearsing and crying because they were on me so hard to do this, do this, do it like this, listen to that guy, you know. And so I had a lot of pressure on me. So by the time I went to college I was I was pretty sure of myself and I'd traveled <laughs> a little bit. Sure. You know, and I'd been in New York, so uh, but I, I really didn't have drum lessons. A guy would show me something about the Civil Ride. A friend named Randy Gillespie, who was living in Atlantic City at the time, for the summers would show me something with the Civil Ride. And someone else would say, you know, you should check this out. And check that out. And then there was jam sessions, and I'd go sitting with a lot of the pros that came. And so uh, I, I, it was I was pretty well on my way. And, and the other thing, the very first night I'm sitting in the dorm at Berkeley, and... Uh, a call came in for a drummer, and I jumped over the chairs faster than anyone else. And they, <laughs> and I got a gig from the very first night I was in Boston. Really? Story. I got that gig. It was down in the combat zone. It was at a strip club. But I'd played strip clubs before, so it was no big deal. Mm-hmm. So I went there, and, and as a matter of fact, a guy who became my uh, counterpoint, I think it was counterpoint teacher, uh, was uh, playing piano in that gig. So hmm. we became friends. He was a teacher at Berkeley. He was a teacher at Berkeley. So uh, I worked from the very first day I was in Boston to the very last day I left. And Alan Dawson used to recommend me for jobs. And as a matter of fact, he recommended me one night for a job with uh, Harvey. You can forget to get over to the Prudential Center right away at the Boston Globe Festival. And Duke Ellington's drummer can't make it. He's sick. You got so I ran over there to Black Suit. And the band had just walked on and were playing the first song, and they all had white tuxedo jackets on. And I had a black suit, so, I, so it was very funny. So I walk in, I played the whole set with them, and they took me backstage afterwards. Uh, Duke gave me the big thumbs up during the show, and uh, it was one of those never forget most memorable moments. So I got to play with Duke and 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 uh, and Alan Dawson, who recommended me, as he was recommending wow. me for lots of jobs. When I was in school, I got to play with a lot, a lot of the great old jazz players and, and and when I graduated my senior year I graduated from from the conservatory I played a couple of weeks with Earl Garner at the jazz workshop and he hired me to go to join his band and go on the road so I, I graduated from school and the very next week I went on the road with Earl Garner which was amazing wow. we were in Europe for seven weeks I was with Earl Garner for seven weeks in Europe and I came back from Europe and I actually left his band because I moved to Los Angeles to to uh, begin my recording career, career, and and someone told me about a job with uh, George Shearing, who was auditioning drummers. I, I went to the audition and got the job, and then I had to quit Earl Garner, which is kind of tough for me to do because I respect him so much. But it mm-hmm. was moving forward, so that's how I ended up in L.A. with a job from the very beginning. I, it, from what I'm hearing, every you know every position that you were in you were you had favorable things happen and i think that most people would from the outside would hear that as luck and i hear it as preparation because you wouldn't have gotten the gigs if you weren't prepared alan dawson wouldn't have recommended you for gigs had you not been prepared you wouldn't have gotten the gig when you get to la had you not been prepared and that's the the recurring theme that i keep hearing in in the things that you're saying is that you were you were prepared. And that's something that I talk about a lot about the, the preparation behind it. And I think most people, not most people, I think a lot of people tend to skip over that step or don't think that it's as important as it is, which to me is foolish. Um, and it's, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. I'd love to hear. Yeah. I'd love to hear. Really, really preparation is, is key because I knew I wanted to play in the studios. And initially when I left high school, I wasn't sure I really wanted to be a musician because I saw a lot of guys coming through and I wanted to do something that I thought was, you know, a, was a, a prestigious job because I came from such a poor background. I wanted to do something that was sort of honorable. 
and I didn't think being a musician from the guys that I've been hanging around and saw guys on drugs and and the whole lifestyle of that wasn't really appealing to me from uh, a, a stand-up kind of a job. So mm-hmm. I was going to become a lawyer until I read an article about studio musicians showed guys in suits and ties and they work for themselves and and that's the light went off light bulb went off my head said that's what I want to do. Really? And so I I changed the school I was going to and I applied to two music schools and got accepted and it was a late entry so I never did get to get a scholarship at Berkeley but uh that at that point I decided I'm gonna be a studio musician and I went to school and that, that those are my sites. When I went to Berkeley they weren't accredited, so after three semesters, I left because I was invited to to go to New England Conservatory, which was accredited, and it also had the classical background. Mm-hmm. So I went there and studied all the classical stuff. My teacher there was Vic Firth, and immediately wow. I, I began playing all the stuff. And I'd already played timpani, so I immediately began playing the mallets there, and those lessons were really intense. I practiced all week, all the time. I learned all the literature, and I was prepared to join an orchestra. And Vic said, I think you're prepared to do whatever you want to do, and I think you should do what you were going to do. And Vic became one of my best friends and best, I mean, just he was a real advocate and uh, mm-hmm. gave me a lot of confidence that I was ready to pretty much do anything. How so was, was he as a teacher? Was he, uh, was he, was he tough? Teacher. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No nonsense. You know? Yeah. But I worked really hard. You have to know that I worked so hard that I guess guys have seen it, but his interviews have said that. I was the hardest working student that he'd ever taught. Mm-hmm. And that to I've me, heard that. And that to me means, you heard that? I have heard yeah, that, that, yeah. That, yeah. That means a lot to me, and meant a lot to me, and I, I did work hard because I felt like when I went to New England, I was behind. I played timpani, but I didn't play all the mallets, so I just went to work. I'd be in that, that practice room when I could from morning to night, and then I'd go to my job and get, you know, so... Vic became a big friend, and when he started his stick line, started the, the line of uh, dance sticks, as he called them, then I was one of his first endorsers. And so, uh, and I remain an endorser with Vic to today. He was right. 40 years later, and I'm still receiving a royalty after all these years. It's Vic amazing. Was, Vic was a, he was a great guy, man. Yeah. I'm su- I was very surprised that he ended up dying so quickly. I mean, so... Uh, I thought he'd be around forever. He and I mm-hmm. thought Remo would be around forever too. Remo uh, got sick and and, uh, and died. So um, two edge, but, uh, two yeah, legends for sure. Well, and and Bob Zildjian because uh, yeah, I ended up leaving Zildjian at a very early age because I didn't feel feel that Zildjian was being fair to African Americans. You know, they really? had all the white guys on the top of pages and the black guys were the, they they didn't really give them much. So I wasn't getting much joy there. And Vic said. A friend of mine, Bob Zilchin, is opening a new company called Sabian, and I think you ought to talk to him because I think he'll treat you right. And hmm. we worked out a deal right there, and I was one of his first endorsers myself at Thick Pen and uh, the Rock and Roll Drum. I can't think of his name, but uh, Carmine Apple. Carmine, we yeah. Were the first, yeah, we were the first endorsers with Z- Z- excuse me, Sabian. So that was like so, what, the, uh, the early 80s maybe? Oh, it was really early. It was probably early, yeah. whenever they started. I'm yeah. not sure, but... 80-something. Uh, yeah, maybe so. And so uh, um, that's how that went. And so Vic was very dear to me. And, so you had uh, mentioned... I worked really, really but, but we were talking about being prepared. When I moved out to mm-hmm. L.A., I was prepared. I felt prepared. I could I could read and had read the, the most difficult music, and I worked hard on sight reading as much as I could read anything, and... Mallets, I put up uh, violin pieces and try and sight read them. And, you know, so I was practicing a lot. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Where do you I'm think that ready. drive comes from? Because I know that you had mentioned that part of it was your father wasn't around. You wanted to you, you wanted to see if maybe you could gain some attention from him uh, by being successful or being a famous musician. Was that part of the drive or what was the – what was the other, uh, you know, pieces of the of the drive that kept you motivated to work as hard as you did? I think initially that might have been it, but as uh, as time went on, it morphed into me, and I had that sense of hard work. Work. I had a strong sense of work ethic from a very early age, and I worked a lot of different jobs and always tried to do the very very best I could, and not sit around and look for, and and wait for someone to tell you what to do. You would take the initiative and do it and those kind of things. And, mm-hmm. and so I always had that drive of trying to, you know, 
be the best. I worked at Tom McCann for a while. They wanted to send me to management school, management school. So I, I just did those kind of things. And when I, when I decided that I was going to do studio work, I knew I had to work extremely difficult to be one of the best that I could. So I worked hard. When I went to New England, I felt like I was behind because those guys had been auditioned and they already played mallets and everything. And I had to catch up. So I felt like I had to really work, work, work really hard. And, and, and I did. So whatever the motivation was for that time, it had nothing to do with my dad. It was about just being as good as I could possibly do and knowing that that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are, there are misconceptions about doing what you love for a living. And a lot of people think that if you do what you love for a living, every single minute of every single day, you're going to enjoy it. And there's not going to be things, you know, during the day that you don't want to do. And I know that you would, I'm guessing that you would disagree with that. Uh, but you have to sort of, you have to fight through those, those days that you don't feel like doing the things, right? That's what, that's what gets you better. That's what, that's what, professionals do is they fight through the things that they don't want to do or maybe you don't want to go to the practice room that day but you go anyway maybe you don't want to you know work on this thing that challenges you but you work on that anyway well for me i can feel myself and i can see myself getting better and mm-hmm. also i had uh, i had an approval from a teacher if it wasn't right and i have to go back and get it done so i I, I had instant gratification from the teachers and playing and, and playing with the other musicians that was there. And at New England, there were so many practice rooms and guys were in there. Someone was in the practice room every day, all day that people play. So you had to get into that environment. It was just so natural to get in there and practice as hard as everybody else. That's, that's the one thing when you go to school like that, even at Berkeley had practice rooms and guys were there practicing every day. You realize that's the culture of what you're going to do when you're there. You mm-hmm. see what it takes to get better. So you automatically get into that mode, you know, you just get in there. And I felt like I was behind, but I had to work harder to learn all the, the uh, literature because I was playing in the A orchestra and all that stuff. And I had to play Tempest and Malice or whatever came along. So, uh, you know, I was in, I was drawn into that culture very easily and it didn't take much for me to, to, to work hard at trying to be as good as I could possibly be. Mm-hmm. When I moved out to L.A., uh, being a drummer, making my living primarily as a drummer, in Boston, when I moved here, I didn't play in the studios as a drummer for at least two years, and I want to say almost three years. I, I then the third year, I started getting jobs as a, as a drummer. Guys found out I played drums, but in the early days, I was percussionist. Only really? playing percussion. Only playing percussion. Early huh. when in Fire Records, I'm, play, I'm playing percussion. I'm playing. I was playing with with Jerry Mulligan playing vibes in L.A. when the drummer didn't show up. It was about an hour and a half late, and they were getting ready to call someone. I said, "Well." I can play until he comes, and then they let me play, and then they fired the drummer. But, uh, <laughs> I, was playing, I, was, I, was, I was playing vibes with Jerry Mulligan, dig that. Wow. So basically, I was reading the parts and worked out all my solos on those tunes, and Dave Grusin was playing piano on the gig, and when he heard me play drums, he he hired me, and we became life friends, and I played on everything he did for a long hmm. period of time. Wow. So it's just, you know... And uh, later on, I ended up work, recording with Jerry Mulligan and Chet Baker at Carnegie Hall. All, the, all the, you know, and he became a fan of the way I played. So mm-hmm. it's just associations and the way things turn around. And I don't think it's luck. I think it's like you said. I think it's being prepared. Mm-hmm. And one foot in front of the other. A lot of you know, we're. I think we're all guilty of a- sort of wanting the instant, you know, the instant success or the instant gratification, mm-hmm. or just want someone to turn on the lights, so to speak. Yeah, I think it also, it's, the luck part means taking the right gigs and taking the gig or not, you know, those are the things that may be a little bit of luck, but as far as the, the other situations, I think the hard work brings about that. Hey, you're listening to this episode 100% free thanks to my friends at Dream Symbols, and I ask that you do yourself a favor and check out Dream Symbols. One, because they support this podcast, they keep it free for you to listen to, but also they make amazing sounding symbols well below the competitors' prices. And I checked out a lot of them at NAM again, and I'm always just blown away by the quality, the, the, the craftsmanship, and the price point. You cannot beat it, I'm telling you right now. Do yourself a favor, check them out. Go to dreamsymbols.com. I've said it before and I'll say it again. 
You may sit at the back of the stage, but everyone knows that the band revolves around you, the drummer. Why? Because we're drummers. We set the tempo, the intensity, and most importantly, the tone. And the easiest way to set the tone is to play Evans Drumheads with Level 360 technology. Thanks to Level 360 technology, Evans Drumheads fit perfectly across the shell and allow for increased tension to help you find your sweet spot. Plus, they take you well beyond normal tuning ranges for higher highs and lower nose. So now the sound that you want will always be the sound that you get. For more info, you can go to evansdrumheads.com. Be sure to check them out. That's evansdrumheads.com. And let's get back into it with my man, Harvey Mason. Do you think that there's a different approach, obviously in connections and who you want to associate with and things like that, if you want to be on the road or you want to be in the studio, but do you think that you would have approached your playing differently if you were concentrating on being on the road? Because I think that being in the studio, and uh, obviously you know this a thousand times better than I, a million times better than I, uh, that being in the studio, everything is under a microscope, everything is a lot more precise, and there's a there's you know a lot more uh, uh, spotlight on your on the holes that you have in your playing. Um, so do you think there's a difference in preparation if, for studio versus going, you know, working on the road? I think there's a difference as far as the way you think. Mm, uh, can you talk to me about that? Approach, and how you approach the studio. Things need to be in place. They need to have great, you have to have great sound. You have to have great time. And you have to have good instruments and tuning and all those things. You have to understand playing with people. It's like you're playing in an orchestra. You have to understand who you're playing. You have to be able to understand music without having to ask a lot of questions. So you have to be able to interpret. And you have to be creative. And I think the guys that ascend to the top, they're able to take liberties that are natural and that fit. And you enhance the music rather than just read the parts. Mm-hmm. So I think those things are necessary. As far as playing live, I think it's great. And But I think at the time... It, it it creates where you you have to be aware of being a showman as well as playing music, and I never cared about that aspect. Of it. I just wanted to make the best music I could, and I didn't care about how it looked or anything. As a matter of fact, I tried to uh, uh, to make as relaxed a play or be as relaxed in playing as I could. But it was more about the music than about any kind of show. I found when you play live, ninety percent of all people that listen to music listen with their eyes. Mm-hmm. So that 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 to me is is pretty tough, and I never really wanted to do that, play that much live. And even when I made my records, I went out and did a few days gigs here and there. But I I was into making the music, right? So, uh, but uh, there's a head difference in as far as what you play and how much you play. And but the other thing, I did take chances playing because basically I was a creative guy and I came from jazz, so. I really took chances, and I think that that's one of the things that propelled me to do it as much as I did, because I was playing, doing dates, but I was creating stuff and playing in bounds with, with, with you know, with, as far as playing in the genre uh, uh, that I was involved in, but uh, taking chances as well, and people mm-hmm. didn't have to explain very much to me. So right. uh, I think that's that's the difference. But live playing, I think, creates more showmanship and uh, rather than necessarily musicality unless you're very very careful Mm -hmm. i it's and i this is i hate even asking this question because i know that it's a hard question uh to answer and it it's sort of open for interpretation but i i'm always interested in in the mindset when you're playing and you are taking chances or you are experimenting or you have some creative uh thing inside of you that you need to get out how do you know if you are doing it and serving the music and it's actually really good, or is it too much? You're feeding your ego and you're just completely, you know, overplaying and trying to show off. And how do you know striking that balance? Well, it's funny because I play better when I'm playing with people because I'm motivated by music. Just to sit down and play a drum solo is difficult for me because I I I, I don't practice licks. And practice, okay, when I play music, I'm going to get here and do that. A lot of guys practice licks. They just wait for the opportunity to throw it in, but I don't do that. I practice calisthenics, technique, different ways to play around the drums, different sounds and things like that, and then I let it go. And when I'm getting a musical situation, I feel that most of the time 
I'm influenced by the music that I'm playing with rather than trying to play something that I know and making it fit in or waiting for the opportunity. So I try and use that approach, you know, and regardless of whether something is, as, as long as I'm playing my instrument, I feel like I'm getting better. A lot of guys say, well, you play studio work, you're restricted, you can't do this. I, I felt like as long as I was playing my drums, no matter how simple it was, every time I played, I was getting better because there was something that I was doing that is making me a better drummer. You know, I'm playing for sound, I'm playing for time here, I'm getting different sound, being very disciplined about that. And I mean, so that was my attitude about it. I didn't care what I was playing. So if I'm playing my instrument and I'm concentrating into it, then I'm getting better on my instrument. And mm -hmm. guys couldn't understand that. And a lot right. of jazz guys say, well, you, you sold out. You you, how could you play that? That was me playing that was important. I'd rather play that than sit at home and not, not play or practice <laughs> right. because I play my instrument. I play my instrument. I'm definitely getting better. Every time I play my instrument, if I'm concentrating and I don't take it for granted, then I'm getting better on my instrument. Mm -hmm. You understand? Yep. That's, that's the attitude you have to have. Mm -hmm. and that's the attitude I had. And I, I, no one told me that, but I just, I appreciate it. I mean, I play with Tiny Tim. We're playing tiptoeing through the tulips. A lot right. of guys would, you know, they would snub their nose off of that, but I didn't do that. It was mm -hmm. important to me to play it and play it right and play it. I did a country and western TV show, and of course, it may not be the most difficult thing to play, but it was the most difficult thing to play if you're going to play it in the genre and play it the way it should be played and play it and, and play it correctly and make it feel right as well. Mm -hmm. So um, that's how I approach it. Nothing was too simple. Nothing was too easy. Right. And, Would you uh, agree that some of those restrictions actually cause you to be more creative? Because you have to work in, I, within these parameters. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Oh, I, I do believe that, yes. Yeah. You, know, you have to really... Uh, uh, I, I do believe that. I, I really do. I remember playing in a band in college where we played across the street from Harvard. Everyone wore cowboy suits except me. You know, it was a country and western band. They told me how to... They showed me how to play the brush and the stick and all that stuff. And, it was good experience. I played mm -hmm. another band in Boston with Don Elias. He was in the band. We played in a Latin band, El Cajunto Azul. And all the Latin dancers from Arthur Marion would come down to our gig and play at a place called The Cave. I learned to play timbales and drums together in that band. So, I mean, you know. Yeah. So I took, I took them all really, really seriously. Mm -hmm. you know? So, and uh, I mean, how like how how invaluable are those experiences when you go into the studio and someone's like, "Oh, I want this to sort of have this kind of vibe to it or this kind of feel." You know how to do that authentically, and you can make it work with the tune. And I mean, you know, I don't have to tell you this. I'm just you know thinking out loud about about this, yeah. just about how oh, how yeah. all those experiences boil down into Harvey Mason, and they make you you. I, I, I definitely believe that, you know. I've been very fortunate to be in a lot of different situations. And uh, I've played with an original Brazilian composer, which is amazing. He wrote everything out. I had a lesson in playing Brazilian music from what he wrote mm -hmm. when I first moved out to L.A. So it was just, you know, it's been very, very fortunate, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, just and, and all about music, you know. Yeah, I think there's... I, I think there's a little bit of uh, – you had mentioned people playing licks and uh, just sort of inserting them in or copying from you know from one section and pasting it into the other. And uh, you know, without getting on my soapbox, I agree that there's, there's a lot of that that's happening. Like I think there's so many people out there with facility that are, that are amazing around the kit. But musically, there's a lot of stuff out there that's just not doing it. For me, from a from a musical perspective, do you see the do you see the same thing? Definitely, definitely, definitely. You know, and I think in some ways I was lucky because I never had drum lessons on the set until I went to college. Mm -hmm. So when I heard something that I thought was really slick and great to play, I start trying to learn it. But within within two minutes, I'd gone off into something else that was that was generated. Or, or that was from that. I, right. would, I would deviate it from what it was. I never played it exactly as it was because I probably didn't have the, the facility to do it that way. So I developed my own way of something that resembled that maybe, but it led me in a whole other direction to play. So mm -hmm. I very rarely copied people, very rarely copied things verbatim. I didn't have the patience, first of all, to sit down and figure it out <laughs> yeah. that much. So, but I might, I might hear it and say, oh man, that's kind of cool. And before you know it, I'm playing something that 
that was came from what I heard. Mm-hmm. So that that's a, that's that, and I think because of the limited facility, I end up uh, finding up and find new and fresh ways to play things that I heard. So mm-hmm. I think that speaks to your creative mind too, of how how you like you like creating things instead of duplicating or uh, you know or just having it be stale and unoriginal. Yeah, well, I found I think so. I think all the different types of music is all a part of became part of my vocabulary now. Things mm-hmm. just went morphed together morphed together. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so looking if you look back at the career that you've had so far, is there is there things still left to that you want to accomplish? Is there still things I mean you've had such a, a successful career by anyone's standards. Is there still things on the table that that you would like to accomplish? Um yes. Um I listen to a lot of. Uh, I've been hiring a lot of young guys in my band. My band's called the Chameleon Band, mm-hmm. obviously, for obvious reasons. For obvious reasons, more than one, but just because we play a lot of different music, and I go to Japan and I don't go with different t- configurations. But and I hire a lot of young guys because I've been listening to a lot of young guys, and I love playing with these young, fresh guys, and and sort of helping them move from one place A to B, A to C, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I listen to a lot of the young drummers too as they're coming along, and and. I try to adopt some of those things that they play. We say licks, but they don't really stick with me because I haven't figured out where to, to put them in the music because they right. don't seem to fit, which is really weird for me. But I see them play them. And then I have a cousin that went to MI and he stayed at my house for a year. So he would show me, oh, they're playing this. Well, look at this video. Here we this, that. And I'll play it. But then when I start playing in a real musical situation, I find it difficult for me to try to, to do that and put it put it where everyone puts it that same way. So uh it's really weird for me. But uh so but I still try to extend myself a little more and come up with different ways, different things to play and mm-hmm. different colors and and challenge by different music. Um you know, I, I while I trained for an orchestra I never really had much chance to, to really play with a legit orchestra and that was kind of something that I thought as I got older I would probably just take a while and just practice all the literature and go start auditioning. But it, it never really slowed down for me. And so I, I, when I was in the studio, I was playing with orchestra, but it was a lot easier because you didn't have to follow a conductor. You're playing, you're playing with clicks and while you're still playing orchestrally. But uh, I had a student of mine who, who played in a, a number of uh, world-class orchestras. And uh, he knew of my uh, playing and legit and knew my background. And I, he was a student early in his life. And... Uh, he invited me to play in a couple walks. So I got to play with the London Symphony with Michael Tilson Thomas, and I had played did that. And then last year I played with the London Symphony again in uh, in in, uh, in in London at the uh, Barbizon Center, and uh, I played Second Timpani. We played Holtz Planets, all seven movements. Hmm. So that was a serious, serious, serious rush for me. Yeah, and I had such a but such a sense of accomplishment because. I actually killed it. It was really great, and I, I I nailed it. Of course, I had no fear. But right. when he first asked me if I wanted to do it, I was like, "Well, I don't know." I thought maybe the time had passed me by because I I only play Tiffany now. Probably on Easter I get called to play in some live things, but that's about it. Or I'll play on a record something here and there. Right. So I thought, well, maybe this is all over. I don't know if I should do it. I said, "Well, let me get back to you." And I and I listened to a couple recordings in London playing it. I had a few different recordings, and I got the music and checked it out. And I said, you know what? Let's do this. Let's go to work and do it. So I went, nice. just like I did in school, I practiced five days a week as much as I could because I had time at that point. And, uh, and I told them I, I'd do it. And uh, I went there and I had an absolute ball. And at the, uh, at the concert, as they pointed out different solos and different people, they pointed me out. And the people normally just clapped, but when it got to me, they just howled because I think it's probably different than seeing a black guy in the orchestra. Which they they don't have anything like that over there in London. Right. And I think the fact that I, that I was just—I mean, I, I played really good, and it was so much fun. Um, it, it was it was moving. I was about to cry to tell you the truth. Wow. Because it was a major, major accomplishment to be in that setting and to really have played it really well. And I had so much support from the other the, the percussionists there. They had five guys there. This piece had everything in it, and they were all so supportive, and they were happy, and they said, well, 
there's no other top drummer in the world that's going to be able to do what you did here. So, and they yeah. named a couple guys. If they can't do this, they can't do that. <laughs> so, so it was it was so much fun, and uh, they invited me to do it again, but I haven't done it. This is the Brown piece they wanted me to do, but I, I figured, you know, well enough alone. I was thinking maybe I'd retire somewhere and get an orchestra in Europe and just play and kind of chill out and have fun. There you go. But uh, but uh, I haven't done that, and I don't know that that's going to be in the cards. I think I'm satisfied now. I knew that I could do it, and I did it, and I did it on the highest level because that's one of the top three orchestras in the world. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm very satisfied with that. And, and while I felt prepared for that, I never really had a chance to really dis- demonstrate that until then. You know, and the first time I played solo, we played uh, uh, Rhapsody Espanol by Ravel, and I played the solo castanet part, which is, I mean, it's nothing real special, but still the pressure to do it right, do sure. it the right way was very, very cool. And I think that's yeah, I something that a lot of people don't know about you is that you had all this, you know, you've had all this orchestral training and, and uh, as you're talking about it now, like still, still striving, striving to, uh, you know, to either improve or, or still accomplish things on that, on that front, I think to me is amazing. So congratulations well, on that. Well, thank you. And it's inspiring. Well, it's you. inspiring really for sure. Well, I'm, I'm really proud of it. And, uh, I had an absolute ball working towards it and, and then having it happen, you know, mm-hmm. and I wasn't nervous because I played so many situations that, uh, but I was, I was stoked, uh, you know, I just couldn't wait. So it was a lot of fun. A lot That's of amazing. Fun. And I look forward to the next, next challenge that I might, you know, I'm not sure what it's going to be, but, uh, uh, I'm just looking forward to whatever it is and seeing if I can handle it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I've, I'm just well, trying to improve, I, I, I'm trying to improve my sound improve my creativity and come up with a great working on a great record now with, with two of my sons and we're working on that it's taken a while but we're looking to do something that's just really 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 special so uh and i'm I'm looking to make it very very modern and not stock at all so we're stretching the boundaries and uh we're going to make it for this year so i'm really looking forward to that amazing i'm excited to see that when it comes out or hear it when it comes out uh, actually, that was the that was the question I was going to ask you about about your sons and and how important for you, you know what does legacy mean for you and how important is it uh, how important is your legacy and I know that you have two sons who are who are doing amazing things in music as well uh, is that is that part of your legacy is there a lot of a lot of you in them? Well, they're both really supremely talented. And I'm very proud of them and happy for them. I'm trying to keep up now. <laughs> I go to a restaurant. And they, oh yeah, you're Harvey's dad, aren't you? You know, so right. I'm really proud of him. So I'm just trying to stay up with him because they're doing so much stuff. And my my youngest son is head of A and R at Quincy Jones Productions, and he's you know uh, co-producing a TV special and this and that and the other. And my other son, as you know, is producing everything, and mm-hmm. now he's more into film music now. So it's 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 fun, and to work with them, all of us together, is really really special and and I listen to them as a matter of fact I produce pretty much all my records except one where my son uh, the producer worked with me on that one which was nominated for a Grammy too so now I listen to them and I let them kind of take the reins and, and say well listen to this dad listen to this what do you think about this right. this, this direction here and they uh, the one son at A&R has helped me gather all the songs and listen to my songs and all that sort of thing so it's really going to be really fun, and I'm enjoying it, meeting a lot of new and fresh people. So it's 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 fun. But I take a lot of pride in those guys, and uh, I'm not sure if they have much of me. But it's really funny to see them do what they do, and to see them step up to the plate in such a huge way. But they both have been around music their entire life, and I sure. I think they understood that. Uh, uh, and they heard all kinds of music. So I knew that that my older son was going to be successful as far as being able to adapt to anything. While he produced all those big pop and R&B records, now he's producing and creating music for films. And uh, he was nominated for a Grammy, and he's been nominated for an Oscar before. So, yeah. And it's because he's, 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 he's diverse, you know? Mm-hmm. He did Dream Girls, did Dream Girls, and he was just nominated this year for uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. He, uh, he provided the music for that. And then he did mm-hmm. Straight Outta Compton, and reproduced reproduced all that did the james brown story then he did help so he's just all over the place doing all kinds of music and uh uh it's, it's great to see it really it's, is great to see 
the apple does not fall fall far from the tree, I suppose. But again, it goes back to the the hard work. I mean, I'm sh- you know you were a great role model for sure, and but they still had to put in the work. You couldn't hand it to them. So that's right. They really did. They had some DNA. It's really funny because the the, the DNA works. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> and I point to like like Layla Hathaway is amazing. And I heard her sing. It brought tears to my eyes because I I work with her dad mm-hmm. and I did his last record. And then to see her and hear her sing, and she has his strong genes. So I, uh, DNA works. I mean, you look at Abe Laboreal Jr. Yep. His dad yep. is a gifted talent, and the, and the kid, I remember when he was just learning to play drums, and he's got the talent. Yeah. So DNA works. It really does work. Well, I and guess I'm out of luck then. <laughs> I'm out of luck. <laughs> well, well, it has to start somewhere, though. So, yeah, yeah. You know. No, I agree. I agree. <laughs> Well, somewhere. well, here's to uh, you know hoping I can hoping I can get it rolling for my for my kids to to. Uh, oh, you can. Yeah, sure you can. Sure you can. I'm sure working can. on it. I'm working on it. I've been working on it. So. Awesome. Well, enjoy. <laughs> I will. Well, Harvey, I want to uh, I want to thank you again for for taking the time to chat. Uh, congratulate you on an amazing career that you've had. That I, I know that. Many people have told you many times over uh, what an influ- a huge influence you've been on them, and you've been a huge influence on my playing. And to sit down and, and chat with you uh, has been a great pleasure. So I thank you so very much, and I wish you nothing but more success in the future. Well, Nick, thank you. It's been great talking to you and reminiscing. And to tell you the truth, I never really think about this much. And, and not until actually the, the Internet did I really concentrate on what I was doing and Half the records I probably never heard, and you know, until I heard it on the radio or something, which it doesn't exist anymore, except mm. through XM now you can hear stuff. So it's been a surprise to me, and I kind of look at it and go, "My goodness gracious, <laughs> that, I did that, I did that." So I take pride in it, but I don't get—I don't have an ego over it because it could have very easily been somebody else. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I enjoy it, and I'm appreciative, and I'm really grateful that I have had the opportunity to play and create so much music with so many amazing pieces musicians. And we are grateful as well. You've put some amazing music out there, so thank you for that. Thank you for having me, Nick. Of course. Look forward to the next time. Anytime, my friend. Thank you so much. All right, my buddy. All, All right. Thank you so much, Nick. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you have it, the inimitable Harvey Mason. For the show notes, you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 370. And I always love hearing your comments, your feedback. Shoot me an email. I'm at nick at drummersresource.com. Hit me up on social, either on at drummersresource or at the Nick Ruffini. And if you're feeling really froggy and you want to leap, go head over to iTunes. Make sure you leave a rating or a review. That lets people know that this podcast is a great podcast to listen to. Also helps it show up higher in the search results and all that fun stuff. And that's all I got for you. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Harvey Mason for being a part of this podcast. And thank you to his son, Max Mason, who connected us and put this whole thing together. So I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.